Well, good morning, Eagles Landing. That was pretty good. I thought I was in the south, though. Uh, good morning. All right, yeah, say good morning like you had a uh, Bulldogs game. Something like that. Uh, so good to be with you. So good to be led this morning to remember what a Savior, what a friend, what a father. I stood there singing that and I thought, why is it so hard for us to trust him? Why is there so much of a wrestle inside of us? Why so much anxiety? Why so much fear when we have, so, what a father, what, what a friend, what a savior. And yet if we're honest, sitting in church this morning, most of us would have to confess there are places where it's just hard. It's just hard, right? Yes? All right, y'all can either talk to me this morning and we'll get out of here by one o'clock. Or you can sit there and be polite and quiet and we're going to be here at about three, all right? I want to talk to you this morning about trusting God in prayer. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and lay it out right from the very start. Your prayer life is a primary indicator of just how much you trust God. Let me say that again. Your prayer life is a primary indicator of just how much you trust God. I read just last week in my quiet time, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, y'all, I know that verse. I've read it and heard it a thousand times, but that morning, I felt called out by the Spirit of God. I have teenagers. I have anxiety. <laughs> let, let me just put this in perspective for you. I'm 64 with two teenage boys. I have anxiety. In fact, I think I can say in all honesty that nothing in my life has ever produced more anxiety than being the father of teenagers. But you know what? That, that morning, God inserted himself into my anxiety, and he spoke to me. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Listen, church, the antidote for anxiety is prayer. The way that you and I overcome the destructive, disruptive power of anxiety in our life is to do what 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us to do, to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us, because he's what? What a father, what a friend, what a savior. And how do we begin to cast anxiety on him except that we come and pray? Today, we're going to look at an Old Testament passage. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to join me there in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. 
2 Chronicles chapter 14, and we're going to consider how is it that we trust God's care for us and cast our anxiety on him. 2 Chronicles chapter 14 opens by introducing us to Asa, who is the new king of Judah. He has ascended the throne following his father's death, and under his leadership, under Asa's leadership, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, experiences a season of peace. Verse 2 tells us that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He led the people to seek and serve God, and God blessed and prospered them. But then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they experience an unprovoked attack from an enemy. So let's pick it up in verse 8. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 8. Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah equipped with large shields and with spears. And 280,000 from Benjamin armed with small shields and bows. All of these were brave fighting men. Zerah the Cushite, the enemy king, marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands and 300 chariots and came as far as Merishah. Asa went out to meet him and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephathah near Merishah. Now stop for just a second. Stop for just a second. I don't want you to run by and miss this. The scripture tells us exactly how many are in Asa's army. There's 300,000 with large shields and spears, and there's 280,000 with small shields and bows. For those of you who are mathematically challenged, that's 580,000, just north of a half a million. But listen to what it says about Zerah, he had an army of thousands upon thousands. Some translations will say he had an army of a million. The idea here is he's got way more than Asa does. They're greatly outnumbered. They're greatly outmanned. Asa knows that this isn't a fair fight. So what does he do? Verse 10 tells us he doesn't shrink back, but he goes out to meet the trouble head on. He's ready to do battle. Now look at verse 11. Ready to fight. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there's nobody like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us. Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come out against this vast army. Lord, you're our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. Church, there's no strategy meeting. There's no gathering the generals to consult and make a battle plan. There's no recounting of the army. There's no census again to make sure how many we've got. There's no attempt to try to recruit others to come and help in the battle. It's just a prayer, a simple prayer at that. Look at it. It's not long or eloquent. There are no big words. It's humble, faith-filled, calling out to God who cared for his people. 
And God responds. He responds to Asa's prayer in power. Look at verse 12. The Lord struck down the Cushites. Let me read that again. The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled. And Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. Such a great number of the Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and his forces. The men of Judah just carried off a large amount of plunder. They destroyed all the villages around Gerar for the terror of the Lord had fallen on them. They looted all these villages since there was so much plunder there. They also attacked the camps of the herders and carried off droves of sheep and goats and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Man, what a story. What an incredible response, y'all. I'm drawn to it. You know why? Because I often feel like I'm in a battle. Like I'm up against things that are much bigger than me. I don't know about you, but life has a way of making me feel my smallness, my insufficiency. Can we talk about that for just a minute this morning? Many of us, maybe even most of us, are facing some kind of battle. We're in the middle of something that we fear has the capacity to take us out. Places in our personal lives where we know that the enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy. Anybody in the room aware of the spiritual battle that you're in? And we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed. We don't, we don't know in some cases how, how to even fight. Let, let, me, let me bring it down just a little bit for you this morning. How many of you in the room how many of you today feel overwhelmed by temptation? You feel overwhelmed by temptation. There, there's some temptation that comes against you regularly and you just feel like you never gain victory over it. You're always wrestling. You're always doing battle with this desire, this longing, this thing, whatever it feels, whatever it is, it feels like more than you can bear and the desires of the flesh are so strong and the fight for holiness is so real. Anybody got a besetting sin? Anybody got something in your life that you just have not yet been able to conquer? Teenagers, young adults, let me ask you this morning, how, how many of you just feel the press to conform? The, the longing to be accepted to be approved, to have a place where you belong is so great that you often feel the pressure to do things that you know are wrong. How many of you this morning are just, you're just overwhelmed by thoughts of the future? You don't know what's around the corner, what's coming. The battle's not at you yet, but you think there's one around the corner. And the fear and anxiety about what is ahead for you is sometimes completely debilitating. Some of you are facing physical challenges, health issues, 
I spent yesterday with my 88-year-old father who lives out in Tucker, and I'm watching him, and he's watching his own body deteriorate, and he's feeling regularly the, the, the effects of age. But some of you, it's not that. It's you got a diagnosis this week. Or you're like Laura laying in the hospital this morning, not knowing what's happening, wondering what's going what's gonna to be necessary for health and healing. For some of you, it's financial. The, the bills exceed the paycheck. Or maybe there's a job crisis. And you're wondering, how... Or even if you're going to be able to make it through this. Parents in the room? How about your kids? Surely you know Satan wants to steal them. Surely you know that he is bent on destroying them. I don't care if they're toddlers or teenagers or young adults. The enemy is after our children. He's after the next generation. And some of you, like me, are living in the middle of that. And you watch it happening. And it feels like the assault on them is coming from every direction. Church, we're at war. We're at war. And Ephesians 6.12 says it pretty plainly. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And y'all, I read that and my anxiety just goes up because that's bigger than me. It's more powerful than me. I'm not up for it. Anybody else anxious this morning? Here's what I want you to see. Like Asa and the people of Judah, we are often faced with overwhelming circumstances. And just like them, we have a choice about how to respond to the things that come against us. We have a choice. We can let anxiety and fear overtake us. We can run and hide and pretend the trouble doesn't exist. We can depend on our own strategies and resources and planning to try to work our way out. Or we can do what Asa did. We can rely on God. One of the primary ways that you and I demonstrate our faith, our confidence, our trust in God is through prayer. In fact, if you want to write something down this morning, I'd challenge you to write this down. Your prayer life may be the best gauge of your faith. Let me say it again. Your prayer life might just be the best gauge of your faith. Not what you say to your friends. Not what you write in your journal. Not what you repeat to yourself when you stand in the mirror. But how you interact with God. That may be the best gauge of your faith. Listen, our fervency in prayer or our lack of it may be the best indicator of where we've placed our trust. Listen to me. This morning, if you're not praying about it, if you're not praying about it, you've decided you can handle it. You've decided you've got it. You've decided you can figure the way out. You are the quintessential American trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Or, or worse yet, you've given up on God. 
You've stopped believing in his ability or his willingness to help. Either way, church, the absence of prayer reveals a lack of faith. I know that's hard. I know that's harsh. But I want to say it again. The absence of prayer reveals a lack of faith. So if you and I are going to be people who trust God in every situation, if we're going to be people who see God fight for us like Asa saw God fight for him, then we're going to have to learn to pray like Asa did in a way that stirs up hope and confidence and faith. So I want to walk through Asa's prayer this morning, and I'm going to show you four things from this passage that I think teach us what the prayer of faith looks like. Now, I would encourage you, not just because I'm the preacher, but always because you are accountable for the word of God that you hear, that you jot some things down. You got a photographic memory, awesome. Otherwise, write this stuff down. It's too good for you just to sit there and stare at me while I cast my pearls before swine. All right, no, I didn't say that. All right, write it down. Write it down. Here, here's, here's one of the things you, you, as the church of God, you're responsible for. You're not just responsible for what you do with the word of God that's preached with you. You're also responsible for how you receive it and whether you test it. You're going to be like the Bereans. You take what Pastor Trey says on Sunday morning, you go home, you take your notes, you get your Bible out, and you test it to see if he is preaching the word of God. And then if he is, then you better obey it. All right? You ready? No? You ready? All right, here we go. Number one, the prayer of faith focuses on the heart of God. The prayer of faith focuses on the heart of God. Look, look where he starts. Lord, Lord, there's nobody like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Lord, there's nobody like you to help the powerless. Y'all, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that sentence right there in the last 12 months. Lord, there's nobody like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Asa knew that God was powerful and strong, that no one could stand up against him. But he also knew that God had a heart for the weak and the oppressed. He knew that God had a soft spot for the underdog and was more than willing and able to act in his defense. Listen to me, Asa wasn't just counting on God's ability, he was counting on God's character. Surely Asa was remembering the Exodus. How God delivered the weak and oppressed nation of Israel from the dominance, from slavery to, to Egypt, from the power of the Pharaoh. Listen, that wasn't just a demonstration of God's superior power. In fact, the scripture is really clear that what moved God to act was his compassion, his concern for his people. Exodus 3:7, God says to Moses. I have indeed seen the misery of the people of Egypt, in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned for their suffering, so I have come down to rescue. Listen, God's fight for his children didn't end there. Throughout Israel's history, God had not only demonstrated his great power, he had repeatedly acted out of his great love for his people. God wasn't just able to help, he was inclined to help. Church, this is what the gospel tells us. Romans 5, 8, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, 
Christ died for us. Or Ephesians, but God, because of the great love in his in great mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. The gospel tells us that God isn't just able, he's willing, he's inclined, his heart is toward us. Listen, I don't want you to miss this. Throughout this prayer, Asa acknowledges his weakness and vulnerability. He's aware of how bad the situation is, but he doesn't lose heart because he doesn't focus his attention on his circumstances. He focuses his attention. He sets his mind and heart on the greatness and goodness of God. Y'all, there's a lesson for us in that. It's just possible that some of you this morning are so overwhelmed with your difficulties simply because you are so focused on them. It's all you can think about. It's all you can talk about. You can describe it to the nth degree. Let me ask you this. Can you describe the greatness and goodness and compassion and mercy and love of God with the same intensity that you describe your trouble? Let me, let me, let me say, say this. How many of you talked more about your trouble last week than you talked about the goodness of God? How many of you articulated the trouble you're in You talked about it, you repeated it, and yet you found it difficult to use that same passion to talk about the goodness and greatness and mercy of God. Listen, y'all, we got to stop rehearsing how bad our situation is and recall the goodness and power and love of God because the prayer of faith, the prayer that stirs up faith is focused on the character of God. Number two, the prayer of faith remembers the faithfulness of God. Look at what he says, help us. Lord our God, for we rely on you. Now the word translated rely here could probably better be translated lean. So it would read this way, help us, Lord our God, for we lean on you. That very same word is used in 2 Samuel 1.6. Now, the circumstances of 2 Samuel 1 are Saul has gone, King Saul has gone out to battle. He's in the middle of a heat of the battle. He's approaching the end of his life. We know that just a few verses later, Saul is dead. But right here at this moment, the scripture says that wounded King Saul is leaning on his sword. This is not just a casual resting on something. It's not just me propping my elbow up on this podium. This is Saul, critically wounded, near death, devoid of all strength, propping all of his weight on his sword. Can you get the picture there for a minute? That's the idea here. Relying on God, no strength of your own. Devoid of ability, devoid of strength, placing all your weight on him. But you only do that, church. You only lean on something or somebody that way when you know you can trust them. But how did Asa know he could rely on God? How how did he know he could lean on God that way? Look at it again. He said, help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. You see how he refers to God? Lord, our God. 
Asa knew that he and the people belonged to God. He knew the truth of Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Asa knew that. The the people of God had a history of being loved and led and cared for by their shepherd. Their present reality was evidence of God's faithfulness. Joshua 21 Verse 43 says this, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. Now don't miss that. Asa and the, and the children of Judah and Benjamin are living out the fulfillment of the promise that God made and accomplished in Joshua 21. He gave them all the land he had sworn to their ancestors. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Listen, even in the face of great opposition, Asa recalled the faithfulness, God's faithfulness to his people and his promises. Look at me this morning. Behind us, as the people of God, behind you as a child of God is a trail of the faithfulness of God to us. You are here this morning alive and breathing. You are able to worship because of God's great love and faithfulness to you. It's one of my favorite verses, Lamentations 3 22 says this, I remember my bitterness and gall, but I don't lose hope because I call this to mind. Because of the Lord's great love for us, we're not consumed, we're not destroyed because his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen, listen to me, church. If we're going to pray in faith, then we're going to have to remember The past faithfulness of God because the past faithfulness of God is the promise of future faithfulness. The scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he's been faithful in the past, then you can trust him to be faithful in the future. Number three, the prayer of faith appeals to the authority of God. The prayer of faith appeals to the authority of God. Look at what he says. And in your name, we have come against this vast army. Y'all, I I couldn't read this without thinking about David as he approached Goliath. You got this runt of the family, this ill-equipped shepherd boy walking out with a slingshot and a few stones to face the massive, experienced man of war with all his armor and battle gear. Y'all, it was an epic mismatch. But David knows none of that matters. So what does he do? As he's walking towards Goliath, he shouts at him this, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. Listen to it. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. He's appealing to the authority of God. David's in essence saying to the the enemy, this is not about me. It is not about me. It's not about my ability. And we're all very glad about that. 
I'm not coming out here on the basis of who I am and what I can do or what I've got. This is about God. It's in his name. I'm his child. This army is his people, and we are under his authority. This is all about him, and it's about what he can do. Y'all, what would change if you approach the difficulty and circumstances of your life that way? It's not about me. It's not about what I want. God, I wish my 15-year-old could learn that. (laughs) Bro, it's not about you. Two most often spoken words in my house, I want. I don't care what you want. When do I get what I want? All right, sorry, that was a... Y'all, y'all, look at me. Look at me. Are we just like teenagers with God? We get in a tough spot, and what do we say? Well, this is not what I was expecting. This is not what I wanted. I want you to do this. I wanted you to do that. I wanted you to give me this. I wanted to work out like that. I want, I want, I want. And I can just hear God in heaven say, bro, it ain't about you. (sighs) Y'all, we got to approach prayer like Asa did. Difficulty and hardship, knowing the fight's not about us. It's not our party. It's about the authority and reputation of of the God of the universe. Listen, God was the one who put Asa in that circumstance at that moment. God was the one who placed him in that position. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. For some of you, that's the rub this morning. You believe in the sovereignty of God, but you're mad because he put you in this position. You're angry with him because he didn't exercise his sovereignty and power in a way that would make you feel comfortable. Listen to me. This is one of the hardest lessons to learn, and it is a place that God continually brings me back to. God is not about putting you and I in circumstances where we can act in autonomy and independence. Let me say it again. God is not about arranging the circumstances of your life so you think you don't need him. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Zilch, nada, zero. And God continually puts me in a place to remind me of that. Why? Because he's trying to beat me down. No, because he's trying to teach me that life comes from being connected to him. Listen to me, many of you, if God gave you the circumstances you want about the only time you would see God would be in the rearview mirror. God's not about cooperating with your illusions of independence and self-sufficiency. So when you and I come to pray, y'all, we got to trust and surrender to our sovereign God who's ruler over all. All right, number four. The prayer of faith rests on the promises of God. Look at this last phrase. Lord, you're our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. Now, i got to be honest. Y'all, I read that and I was like, this makes no sense to me. This makes no sense. This is super confusing to me. It seems kind of contradictory, okay? He starts the prayer by saying, Lord, there's nobody like you to help the powerless up against the mighty. And then he's going to end with, hey, please don't let the mere mortals prevail against you. What's up with that? What, What does he mean? How could he even suggest that mere mortals could prevail against the God of the universe? Well, here's what I think is happening. 
King Zerah, the Cushite, and his army have come to do what? They've come to conquer Judah and oust them from the homes and the land that God had promised and given to them. These were the homes. This was the land which God had said he would give to his people, even though they did not build them. Deuteronomy 6, he says, I'm going to bring you into the land that I swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them a land, large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And God said, then I'm going to do that, and then you're going to eat and be satisfied. Here's what I want you to see here. This land, these houses and vineyards and olive groves represented God's plan for his people. The enemies were trying to take what God had promised them. They wanted to rob Israel of the covenant promises of God. They weren't just opposing King Asa and his people. They were opposing the work of God in behalf of his children. So Asa is appealing to the revealed purposes and promises of God. In faith, Asa is calling on God to finish what he started. He's like, God, you you gave us this land. Don't let them take this away from us. You started this. You promised it. You fulfilled it. Don't let them take away what you gave us. He's asking God to make good on his promises. So that's why he says, don't let mere mortals prevail against you. I don't know what Asa had in mind. Maybe he had Psalm 33, 10, and 11 tucked in his memory. I memorized this verse years ago. You'd do well to do the same. Psalm 33, 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through every generation. Y'all, I, I, I got to tell you that every time I say that verse back, I call that verse up, I pray that verse up, I'm reminded that what I'm facing is smaller than what God said he could thwart and handle. Listen, if God can handle the plans of nations and kings and he can thwart those, he can handle your boss or your neighbor. Or this trouble, or that hardship, or this lack. It's not too big for him. Listen, when you and I are facing hardship and difficulty, when we feel like everything is falling apart, we absolutely must cling to the revealed purposes and promises of God. Can I ask you this morning, do you know what those are? Can you say them back? It's why I've memorized verses like Philippians 1.6 and I say it over and over again to myself and to other people being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Y'all, some days it doesn't feel like it's happening but I need to remind myself that what God started, he's not gonna finish. He's not gonna walk away like a shady contractor from an unfinished job. God's gonna finish what he started in me. He's gonna do the work that he promised. Just two years ago, I added this one to my arsenal. Jude one twenty four. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. Y'all, I I need to say that to myself. God's going to get me there. He's going to present me before his glorious presence, faultless 
I'm not going to present myself. I'm not going to arrive on my own. Y'all, I don't have enough self-discipline to do that. He's going to do it. And it says, faultless and with great joy. You know what that means? He's going to be really happy about it. And I'm going to be happy about it. And so is everybody who's ever had to deal with me. Y'all, God is faithful to his promises. Listen to me this morning. Nothing can come against, thwart, frustrate, impede, or deter what God has purposed and promised to do in you and for you. And the prayer of faith rests on those promises and plans. Now, before we wrap up, there's one more thing I want you to see. It's not explicit. It's implied. But I think it's so incredibly important for us in the family of God and in the church of Jesus Christ. Where was Asa when he prayed this prayer? He was right out in front of everybody. Asa didn't go in his prayer closet and then come out with his game face on. He didn't go hide and say his private little prayer and then muster up the strength to come out and lead like a man. Asa exposed his weakness. He exposed his need and his dependence for everybody to see. Dad's in the room, I want you to look at me a minute. Husbands. Your wife is not helped by you acting like you got it all together. Newsflash, she already knows you don't. You know what will help your wife trust in God? When you expose your weakness and your need and your vulnerability in front of her and you say, I can't, but God can. Husbands, you're not your wife's savior. Parents, please stop acting like you're perfect or you were perfect or you did it all right. Do your kids know what you struggled with at their age? Do your teenagers know what you did battle with? Do they know how you fell? You know what the hardest thing to do with our, our, our teenage boys is? Is to help them understand that at their age, we really did feel very strongly the same temptation they feel. And we often fell. And the reason that we work so hard to warn them is because we don't want them to experience the pain we did. Y'all be real with your kids. They're not helped by thinking you're the perfect parents. You set a standard for them they know they can't live up to. Expose your weakness and your need and your vulnerability. Church, the worst thing we can do for each other is walk in this room on Sunday morning all dressed up with a perfect smile on our face, acting like we can handle everything. 
Listen, together, we need to confess we are weak and vulnerable and absolutely and completely dependent on God. And if he doesn't work in our behalf, we're not going to make it. There's no shame in that. There's glory in that. Because here's what's going to happen, y'all. I'm going to be dead one day. But he's going to be very much alive. And what I can't do for you, he can do. So let me go back to where we started. Anybody in the room feel overwhelmed? Where is that place? It's bigger than you. It escapes your understanding. You don't know how to handle it. There is the seed, maybe even the full-grown fruit of anxiety in your life. Where is that? Can you identify that this morning? What is it that you don't know how to handle? Now I'm going to ask you to do this. If you've got a spot like that in your life, a place like that, I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm going to ask you to say to your brothers and your sisters in this room, I've got a battle. I'm in a battle. I'm in a fight. I'm confronting something. Something is confronting me that's too big for me. Please don't stand up if you don't have an honest place. I'm not asking for everybody in the room to stand up. I'm asking you to identify yourself as weak and needy and helpless. Here's how I want to close. You stood up. Would you be willing to come and pray? Would you be willing to come to the front? To prostrate yourself. To humble yourself before God. And say, Lord, there's nobody like you. There's nobody like you to help the powerless. God, there's nobody that's going to be able to help me. There's nobody that's inclined to help me. Can you say that to him this morning? God, I need you. Can you come and say to him, God, I'm relying on you. I'm leaning on you. I'm, I am placing all of the weight of this thing on you. I can't handle it. You're already down here. Go ahead and start praying. Pray out loud. Make the cry of your heart. Name that place to him. Call out to him that situation, that relationship, that circumstance, that fear. Say what it is. Say it to him. Say, God, there's nobody like you that can help me with this thing. Say it. Name it. Come on, call out to him. Let's fill the room with the sound of God's children, just like Asa was on that battlefield, crying out to him, acknowledging weakness, but at the same breath, acknowledging greatness and power and compassion and mercy. It's okay. Weep. Cry out to him.
Y'all, there's not a loving dad in this room who's turned off by the weakness and tears of his child. There's not a loving father that's going to look at his kid with contempt because he cries and asks for help. I'm a dad. I know. You know what I want? I want my children to admit that they need me and I want them to invite me into the thing that they're afraid of or concerned about. Listen to me. As the Lord, as the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Listen, he's longing to pick you up this morning. Ask him, Daddy, pick me up. Daddy, pick me up. God, I need you this morning. I need you this morning. I'm not enough. I'm not enough, God. But you are. God, would you fight for us? God, would you do what you did for Asa and the children of Benjamin and Judah? Would you go in front of us and fight for us? God, would you accomplish all of your good purposes and plans? God, would you help us this morning exchange our pitiful little dreams for ourselves with your grand and glorious dream for us? God, we want what you want. We want what you want. Before you get up and move, would you put your hand on somebody close to you? Would just reach out to somebody near to you? And would you pray for them? You don't have to know what they're facing. Would you just ask God, fight for my brother. Fight for my sister, God. Move. Work. God, for your glory and your great name. God, you're a good father. And standing on this stage this morning and looking at my brothers and sisters. God, I'm asking you, would you let us this week see you work in ways we could not have imagined? Would you go before us? God, I pray that for some who are, 
who are kneeling before you right now before they get home, they'll already see an answer to, your, to their prayer. Lord, there's nobody like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you and in your name we've come against this vast army. Lord, you're our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. God, we trust you today. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.